Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Amy is known as a lover of libraries and has acknowledged research using library and museum collections was important for the value of amazement. Recognising China's importance to Australia, the library has been collecting works in Chinese and works about China since the 1950s, now holding more than 300,000 volumes. We hold many significant antique works and, in, and indeed the library's oldest book is from China known as the Greater Sutra of the Perfection of Transcendent Wisdom, a Buddhist scripture from 1162. However, the focus of building our ongoing Chinese collection is on modern China from the end of the Qing period, 1911 and 1912. This period is captured so vividly in the Valley of Amazement, with the celebrations in Shanghai bringing in the New Republic forming part of the backdrop to this wonderfully woven story. On the weekend just past, a friend of mine told me that Amy was in a band with Stephen King and a number of other prominent authors. So I did a quick search and found that the band, the Rock Bottom Remainders, <laughs> played their last ever concert at the American Library Association Conference in 2012, raising money for librarian scholarships. What a wonderful thing to do. Author and lead guitarist of the band, Dave Berry, was quoted before the concert. We love librarians. We love them so much that for this performance, we're going to try to actually learn the songs before we perform them. <laughs> Amy is, of course, the author of the best-selling The Joy Luck Club, The Kitchen God's Wife, The Hundred Secret Senses, The Bone Setter's Daughter, The Opposite of Fate, Memories of a Writing Life, Saving Fish from Drowning and two children's books, The Moon Lady and Sagwa, which was adapted into a PBS Kids production. The library is proud to hold nine of Amy's novels in the collection, in both English and Chinese, and earlier today Amy was kind enough to sign our copies, so thank you. Joining Amy in conversation this evening is one of the library's great friends, Colin Steele. Colin is an Emeritus Fellow of the Australian National University. He's the author and editor of seven books on history, libraries and scholarly communication, as well as over 300 articles and reviews. In 1998, he was awarded a fellowship by both the British and Australian Library Associations. And he's been a judge for the Prime Minister's Literary Awards for non-fiction from 2010 to 2012, and also for history in 2012. In his spare time, Colin is a regular reviewer for several journals, as well as the Canberra Times. Please welcome Amy Tan and Colin Steele. Thank you. And as we started about 15 minutes late, we're going to go on until 6.15 and then 
during that period we'll have question and answers and um, then the book signings in the foyer. And just as a promo, if I may, before we start the conversation, do um, apparently that wonderful book sale that you passed on the way in the foyer will be, still be operating afterwards. So do, after you've bought all the books of Amy, do go and buy some of those wonderful bargains in the foyer. I am going to buy some too. <laughs> <laughs> They've only got, oh yes, you said you only had carry on, but Jane can carry those for you. <laughs> Uh, if we could just do a brief description of the book and then we'll um, ask a question and look at some of the slides of, um, in due course of uh, Amy's uh, mother and grandma grandmother in particular. Because the Valley of Amazement follows Lulu, an American living in China, and then her young daughter Violet in Shanghai's top courtesan culture in the early years of the 20th century. Violet describes herself in the actual first paragraph of the book at the age of seven as follows. I knew exactly who I was, a thoroughly American girl in race, manners, and speech, whose mother, Lulu Minturn, was the only white woman who owned a first-class quarters and house in Shanghai. Amy, the value of amazement, I understand, was triggered by a historical photo which you saw, which brought back memories of your grandmother, who died of an overdose of opium in, 19, in 1925. Yes. Can you tell us about the origins of the novel and, the grandmother, and your grandmother and your memories? Well, first I should tell you that my, the, there was a legend about my grandmother, and I call it legend now, uh, that she was an old-fashioned woman, a victim of society, that she was um, quiet, traditional, stay-at-home kind of woman. Uh, she had been married to a scholar, then widowed, and uh, she was the first wife. She never should have remarried, but she ended up marrying a rich man, was the first wife of this rich man. Uh, as the story went, she accidentally died from taking too much opium. So that was the first version of that. Um, there were several things that were undone over time, but the biggest one was when I discovered a photograph in a book about Shanghai that looked very much like a photo, my favorite photo of my grandmother. And I, I'll see if I can find it on here. This is the photo of my grandmother it sits on my desk, and I used to think, oh, you know, what is she thinking of? She's so beautiful, so dreamy-eyed. And notice the, the head wrap that is forming a V at the top of the forehead and encrusted, it seems, with some pearls. The high neck uh, collar that goes to just below the earlobe. The shorter sleeves, the tight shorter sleeves instead of the belled-out ones, and the lining that goes down to the wrist the tightness of the pants, and the fact that this is taken in a photo studio. The photo that I saw in uh, a book, the, uh, I'm sorry, this one is of my, um, my grandmother. Now you see the old-fashioned woman there leaning against a rock, and the little girl there is my mother. This was the image I had of my grandmother uh, for, for many years. This is what she looked like when she was pregnant and just before she killed herself, when she lived on an island called Chongming Dao, just off of Shanghai, after she married the rich man as his fourth wife. This is the photo that I found in a book about Shanghai courtesans. Uh, these women are, um, as you can see, wearing identical outfits, taken around 1911, and the photo of my grandmother was taken about the same year. So if you look at this, you can see the similarity. As I read uh, this book, it was a scholarly book, uh, and I read that these particular fashion items were particular to courtesans. And 
that set my whole mind reeling and trying to find out what was within this mystery, truth, fiction, fable, uh, what was the reason why she would have been wearing those clothes, another courtesan of that period. My grandmother, in an earlier period of her life, started looking at these pictures through a magnifying glass, never had seen them through this viewpoint, and thereafter started uh, writing this book set in a courtesan house, so I just could imagine that life if that truly had been the life that she, she had in Shanghai. And you did a lot of research on the courtesan in that period, didn't you? I did, with absolute fascination. Now, I was writing another book at the time, and, at the, and simultaneously doing research on courtesans for personal reasons, and it became so all-consuming that I abandoned the other book and started a new one, just set in a courtesan house. Mm. Um, I just had to be there and find out, figure out what was going on. And so I consumed a lot of books on courtesan culture, and believe it or not, there are a lot of academic books out there. They didn't all agree with each other on the facts of that, but um, uh, that became my, my obsession. Mm. And in the book itself, um, you jokingly said, because you've had to be much more sexually explicit in, these, in this book than your previous ones, that you called it 50 shades, but then you changed to 100 shades of tan. Yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had written a great deal of this book, and, and I was at a university, and I uh, was being honored uh, there. And I was at a reception, and somebody was talking about a book and saying, oh, yeah, my daughter has that book, and... And she says it's terrible, and I, so I have to wait before I can read it. Um, and, and another woman said, yes, you know, I've, I've read it, it's terrible. And I kept hearing this, I've read this book, it's terrible, it's terrible. And I, I heard Fifty Shades of Grey, and I said, what is, what is this about? And they told me, and I thought, oh no, people are going to think that I wrote my book to be a ripoff of Fifty Shades of Grey. I called my hundred shades of tan. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the Valley of Amazement, it obviously continues your exploration of mothers and daughters that were in the Joyluck Club. You wrote in Opposite of Fate, which was a collection of essays, non-fiction essays, published uh, about 2003, that I was, quote, born to a mother with a convoluted secret past. My mother could never talk about her shame of being a concubine's daughter. Was this because of her shame or because she saw her mother die or...? She said to me that it was a shame uh, that her mother bore that she could never wash off her back. And I remember her crying to me and said, this is something you can't understand. You don't understand what kind of shame this is. You know, and it's true, to an American girl, this is exotic, it's interesting, uh, it doesn't carry the same social ramifications. And I do think that she kept that from me because of the shame. She didn't want me to view her mother through the veil of shame. Mm. And you were saying at that time, courtesans were slightly... You might tell us the difference between courtesans and concubines. Yes. But also you said the courtesans, the top courtesans, were almost like rock stars of today. Yes, yeah. Could you say a bit about um, that? Well, first of all, courtesans, concubines. Concubines are known as wives, um, and a man could have numerous wives. Uh, the man that my grandmother married in her second marriage had seven wives. She was the fourth. And, there, and even though they're concubines, they are known as fourth wife, fifth wife, sixth wife. Um, courtesans, on the other hand, are along that continuum of the sex trade. And the very bottom are sex slaves, 
very tragic life. Uh, oftentimes kidnapped girls who are lying in a shed and having men come one after the other. Uh, as they lie there, they're drugged. At the other end, there are first-class courtesan houses. These are women who actually court, they are courted. They have men who come and bring them gifts. It's rather like the Playboy Club, in which they have uh, a social group. They have dinner there with their, their friends. Uh, they hear entertainment, and they give gifts to their favorite uh, courtesan. It is the courtesan who decides which among these men, say if there are five or six of them, which of those men get her special favors in the boudoir. And it doesn't happen instantly. Uh, if she was clever and a good businesswoman, she chose the man who was most beneficial to her financial security. And if she was foolish, she chose the cute guy. <laughs> in fact, you say in chapter four of the book, which is called Etiquette for Beauties of the Boudoir, um, is one in which Magic Good advises Violet on how to become a popular courtesan while avoiding, quote, cheapskates, false love, and suicide. <laughs> and you, I think you said also that um, the wives of some of the men who frequented the courtesans actually did go to them for advice on yeah. that. Yeah, I, I mean, this was a... This was a clue that they, that sex, um, that the sexual t techniques that these women had were um, a big part of their popularity. The interesting thing is among all of the uh, academics uh, that I consulted with, three of them, they, they all said they could not find any actual documentation of what the sex techniques were. They had a lot of information about how the courtesan houses ran, they had letters, they had uh, other, other information, but not what the tricks of the trade were. Um, there were women, the wives who paid dearly to see what those tricks were, so we know that they were special. And there were courtesans who were famous because they had a certain trick, but we don't know what that was. Mm. So it left me to use my imagination as to mm. what that was. And what are Chinese erotic novels of that time like? Um, one is a classic that had been around since the Ming Dynasty. The most famous one is uh, Jinping Mei, which uh, is uh, known as a pornographic novel, but it is actually also one of China's most literary novel. A very, very long novel, and most of the literariness of it has been excised, and the sex scenes left in, and that, for many people, is, is known as the novel Jinping Mei. But if you did read it just for, for that purpose, there is a lot in there about sex. There's been a new one done by a scholar that includes everything, and I realized, you know, my book was kind of suggestive of what went on, and the book that's just been done is instructive. So, and um, I gather your publisher said that one of your in your draft one of your paragraphs or sections was too Laurentian, meaning D. H. Lawrence, presumably. Well, when I was, I have a new editor, and he's wonderful. He's one of the most literary, wonderful, warm editors in the you know in publishing. Um, and I was doing this draft, and I said, you know, I, I just have never written sex scenes. Uh, you know, I have this fear people are going to say, oh, it's from her life, you know. Uh, and I said, you have to promise me you won't let any corny sex scenes get, get through. Um, and at one point, he highlighted a passage, and he said, Laurentian, exclamation mark. 
Laurentian being the spelling of D.H. Lawrence, T-I-A-N. And I said, what, what did you mean? I mean, it, it sounded like an insult. You know? <laughs> I said, what did you mean by that? And I can't remember his exact words, but it had something to do with a, you know, some transformative internal you know, dialogue. D.H. Uh, Lawrence, sons and lovers, uh, you know, kind of, you know, get back at mom kind of thing. And I, and, and I said, well, whatever it is, I don't want it. And I cut it out. Mm. And I started changing. Um, it's very difficult writing a sex scene, you know, in a way that is not over the top. Um, and, and dialogue, especially mm. in these love scenes. I joked with him, actually. <laughs> we had the greatest uh, email exchange throughout the, the writing of this book. We have about 1,500 emails. So you can see how mm. often we went back and forth. Um, I said to him in one email that the only honest dialogue you could have in a sex scene would be two sentences. One would be, that feels good, and the other would be, don't stop. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing that you might be thinking of, if, if it wasn't good, is why is the dog barking? Um, <laughs> and, he, and then he wrote back and he said, I don't know what you expect me to comment on with this. <laughs> And I had to write back, I'm actually joking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the kind of thing, you, you know, that you ever, you, if you've ever wondered, what does an, an editor and a writer talk about? How do they work together? <laughs> That's one way. As an aside, I hope you're keeping all your emails because university libraries and national libraries like to keep <laughs> writers' collections. They would have a real field day with those, yeah. <laughs> Uh, in the novel, both Lulu and Violet are separated in dramatic fashion from their daughters. The mothers in the novel suffer from guilt, the daughters from a sense of abandonment. Did you see that playing through in your three generations of the Tans? I did in, the, in the, my mother's side of the family. Um, it, it's something that is not uncommon, I have discovered in talking to a number of families who, who immigrated from China to the United States. My mother um, left China in 1949, and in doing so, she left behind three daughters, my half-sisters. I didn't know about these uh, sisters until I was in my teens, and I learned that she had been married before. She came to the States, married my father, who was a minister, uh, and she led the life of a very proper minister's wife. I found out more recently, in the last few years, my mother never got divorced. Um, so these secrets keep coming out. You know, just when I think I've exhausted all of the family secrets from my novels and more come out, um, that one. Um, it's not to say that I'm, I'm looking for secrets as the basis for my novels. What it brings up is that notion of who we are and that despite having secrets and hiding who we are, you know, these things come forward and then they seem to make sense anyway. My mother was abandoned as well as a young child, and, and that is because her mother killed herself when she was nine, and she watched her mother die. We don't often think of suicide as being abandonment of a child, but it actually is emotionally. She mm. wanted to join her mother. She wanted to die and be with mm. her, and that was a theme that continued the rest of her life. She was suicidal throughout her entire life. Mm. Uh, when things got too much, she talked of dying, and she also tried on a number of occasions. Um, uh, you only have to see one, two, or three of those when you're a child to be fearful every time your mother talks about killing herself. Mm -hmm. 
in my family, there were also, um, I had a cousin who was left behind as well. Um, actually, two cousins. One was left behind because their parents were young communists going through uh, the countryside and the Japanese were on their tails. And so if the baby cried, the whole group of people, about 20 people, would have been killed. And so they chose to leave this baby with a poor farmer's family, and they did not find her again for another nine years. Mm. Uh, in my, on the other side, my uncle's family, they were leaving China. They had to leave a grandmother behind, or the mother of uh, the, my aunt, and they decided they should leave one of their children behind to keep her company. And so that was one of my cousins. She never forgave her family for that. Oh and in thinking about what a child would feel, I had asked myself that question, you know, what are the responsibilities of a father? What are those of a mother? Um, if you abandon a child, is there ever any excuse, any other re any reason where you could say that's understandable? To a child, no. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, in the case of my sister and uh, my cousin, there was a degree um, to which they would never be able to forgive. Mm -hmm. The cousin who was left as a baby, she never wanted to leave that farmer's family because that was the only family she'd known for the first five to, uh, nine years of life. And you went back in with your mother in 1987, I think. What was the reaction yeah. on both sides? She had been back um, earlier. She, she left in 1949. She went back in 1979 after oh, right. a separation of 30 years. I did not go until 1987. Uh, and I went because I had thought my mother was, had died. Um, and I found out, when I found out she hadn't, I made this promise to myself that I would go to China and get to know her. Um, that meant I was going to get to know my sisters. And I imagined so many times what it was going to be like to be there, to be, you know, that I would be confused as somebody was Chinese and maybe they wouldn't let me out of the country. Um, or, you know, I'd have this reunion with the sisters. It would be very dramatic. Um, first of all, I did not look Chinese. I had on long, I had long hair and makeup and everybody stared at me. They, you know, hundreds of people would surround me just to stare at me. The other is that I didn't recognize that the woman standing by the side of my uncle was my sister. I thought it was his as assistant. And so I, I missed that opportunity to have the big tearful uh, moment that you see in the Joy Luck Club film, you know, hey, yeah, hey, yeah, exactly. je, je, you know, tears, <laughs> tears. Um, we spent uh, much of our time going over, you know, who looks like mom? Oh, you have that characteristic. Or, you know, being polite, saying, no, you look more like mom. No, you look more like mom. Um, and later on, it evolved to, I look more like mom. <laughs> Each one claiming, no, I look more like mom. Um, it was, it was um, emotional on, on many different levels, but one of them was looking at them and seeing, that could have been my life. Mm. Um, what if I had been raised in, uh, during the Cultural Revolution, would I have become a writer? Mm. Um, and seeing what their personality was like and what things were similar to mine, seeing that they had gestures similar to my mother's and to mm. me. Um, very um, interesting differences also in their attitudes on uh, opportunities. And 
seen also what my mother felt about those daughters, which mm. it was a little bit shocking to me when she said of one, I don't like her. I said, how can you not like your own daughter? She said, she is just like her father. She's tricky, and I don't like her. And, and I think, you know, she, this was no longer the 10-year-old girl, the 10-year-old daughter she had when she left. This was a middle-aged woman, and this was the new relationship she had with this woman. And the, that daughter had a new relationship with her, mm. not the mother she had 30 years ago. Although she did say of you, um, you asked her whether you were beautiful when you were a girl by Chinese standards. She replied, to Chinese person, you're not beautiful, you're plain. But she went on, pretty can be bad luck, ju not just good. Yeah, so oh, yeah. She, she was... small consolation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when I was six, you know, I think I was 13 or 14, and yeah. boys just had no interest. I had a lot of boys who were... I, to whom I was the best friend. They could confide in me, you know, I'm so in love with Corey, you know, what should I do? And I'm just thinking, oh, I'm in love with you. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, she told me that because she was beautiful. When she was a little girl, she said, everybody adored her. Um, she was so special. Um, everyone had wanted to marry her. When she left her husband, she was thrown into jail. And being a socialite, socialite she was um, featured in the newspaper every day in the gossip columns. And she said that young girls cried for her because she was too beautiful to be in jail. Um, so that was my mother, a very vain woman, who said to me, um, she would look at my ear, which was slightly deformed. I mean, it's not. You wouldn't even <laughs> notice it, but she noticed every single deformity. And she said, oh, too bad, Daddy and I can't afford the plastic surgery to fix it here. <laughs> you know, and I, so I, I grew up, you know, giving up the notion that I would, that I would ever be beautiful like my mother. And I, I believe her now was a good thing because she, she be, you know, depended on her looks and it, it led her to marry a horrible man who was a playboy who wanted her for her looks. And I learned that I had to depend on myself, my wits and my, uh, the other parts of myself to um, find what I wanted in life and somebody who was genuine and uh, a good person who, mm. who wouldn't, well, you know, wouldn't like me for my not being beautiful or whatever. <laughs> Please, afterward, do not tell me you, I should not worry and that you're not ugly, you know, don't give me this pep talk. I am perfectly confident with the way that I look. <laughs> Um, and uh, I've long, you know, I, I, in fact, later in life, it, it's kind of strange when um, the, the f baby fat started to melt off my face and the, you know, hollows and wrinkles and things start. My mother looked at me one day and she, she had Alzheimer's already, but she said, oh, you look just like me. <laughs> and at the time I thought she meant I looked like I was 80. <laughs> but my, my sisters and my brother said they, they, they did have this, these moments when they would look at me and they say, you look just like mom. Mm. So over the years, my, face, my facial features have changed. Um, and I do look um, a little bit more like her. Do you think you've, you've had such a long and successful marriage because she gave you instructions on boys and in particular on yeah. kissing? Uh, she did. She, you know, uh, she said to me at an age when all I knew about sex was a fallopian tube and a, 
and a little, you know, white tadpole, you know, sort of floating up to a, a marshmallow. Um, <laughs> you know, these films you would see in dark gymnasiums. <laughs> My mother said to me, she gave me the real deal. She said, don't let a boy kiss you, because if you do, maybe you can't stop. And then you're going to have a baby. And then you're going to be so ashamed you put the baby in the garbage can. And then the police are going to come and they're going to put you in jail the rest of your life. <laughs> you want to kiss? You might as well just kill yourself right now. You know, what does that mean? I mean, what is the meaning here? That What is so good you can't stop? And um, I defied her by stopping. And the first boyfriend I, I had, <laughs> I stopped. Um, and uh, my husband and I, we've been together for 44 years and we don't have any babies. So what does that tell you? <laughs> <laughs> well, from there to move on to Violet again. Um, in oh, the you know what? I do want to say one thing. Yeah. It sounds like crazy advice, but it is based on what happened. You know, I pieced it together over the years. She... Um, was th this match was made with this man, the playboy, but I think she probably fell in love with him, said, sure, I'll marry this guy. He was very charming. She probably kissed him, then had a baby nine months later. This guy was horrible, had many men in the house, and she had to be there and watch him. Um, she tried to kill herself a number of times because of that marriage. And so all these pieces made sense. She ended up with this guy, she ended up with all these babies, and she ended up trying mm. to kill herself. Mm -hmm. um, so all of the things sort of melded together into this bit of advice. Well, does that segue into what Violet said to her daughter, resist much, obey little? Yeah. Um, during the writing of this book, I, I actually, for some reason, Walt Whitman came into my life in a really big way. I just kept, it was like, Clues like Hansel and Gretel, you know, being sending out these clues of where to go with the breadcrumbs. I kept running into these phrases, and that is one, you know. Um, and it, she says that uh, to her child, meaning, don't get. You are in a world now where there's a lot of danger, and the danger has to do with somebody taking over your mind. It's a message my mother gave to me in different ways. You know, don't let the feelings and the, the um, intentions of others or their desires of others um, define who you are. She didn't say it in those words, but the idea was we could so easily fall into thinking of ourselves through the perceptions of other people. And that especially if you're a woman, especially if you're Chinese, that those perceptions can, can be pretty low. Mm. Uh, and so resist, you know, obey little, resist a lot, mm. was a, a theme that I had. It is a theme also of a writer, not to just automatically take in what is given to you as beliefs and not struggle with that, you know, mm. to question everything. Mm. Um, so I took that as my mantra, uh, not those words, but, but the sense of that in the later adult part of my life. Mm. There are not some. There are quite a few not very nice men in the book, and one of the worst, I think, is Perpetual, who um, false pretenses marries Violet, and she becomes, I think, the fourth wife or whatever in a rather desolate part of China. Um, 
I was just wondering, does that reflect Chinese men behaving badly in general, or was that society, <laughs> was that society no. at the time where women had low esteem? Or? A lot of the bad men in my book are modeled after that husband. My, mm. I heard so much about him growing up. She called him that bad man. He didn't even have a name. That bad man. And what she said about him was um, so bad that when she read my book, she'd say, you made him look too good. Um, and on the other hand, you do have to say that society in that time allowed men that privilege of doing what they wanted, of taking multiple wives, of not letting them divorce, of uh, forcing them to have sex, uh, forcing them to be in the bedroom while they took other women. Um, my mother was not able to leave. She um, uh, the, she thought she was divorced at one time. He put a gun to her head and he said, sign here. It says you're divorced from me. You're no longer my husband. And she gladly did it. She signed and then he says, you're no longer my wife. You're a whore. And then he raped her. Um, it was that kind of um, uh, right that men had. Not that all men were like that. My father was a, a really good person. But it's just that when you have a society that allows that to happen, you will end up with uh, men who take advantage of that. And in our terms, through our eyes, knowing that that is morally wrong, we can say that those men were truly awful. Um, and Violet goes off to the beautifully described um, remote half-moon village, I think it is all, uh, moon pond village, sorry. Mm -hmm. And um, where did you go to research that or get details? Moon Pond Village. Yeah. <laughs> I went to um, Anhui province. There were two, actually, two places in rural China. One was in Guizhou, which is the most uh, remote port, one of the most remote poorest provinces in China. I went to a little Dong village, rice farmers, um, tiny place where a fire had occurred and a fifth of the buildings had burned down. These were destitute people. And I spent about three weeks with them, listening to their stories, their lives, their gripes with their neighbors. Then I went to another, and, and this place was absolutely gorgeous. Um, despite the fire, uh, it had um, you know big mountains and greenery in a valley, uh, beautiful architecture. Then I went to a place in Anhui province, about 250 miles uh, uh, inland from Shanghai. And I stayed in a 400-year-old mansion. The mansion, being 400 years old, did not have the conveniences that we might equate with a mansion today. Um, but it belonged to a merchant. And I got to see what it was like to live in a rich man's house. Um, and it was, um, my husband and I would say it was cold, you know. <laughs> and it was... It was very uncomfortable. I went there actually with the writer Lisa C, who's oh, a yeah. friend of mine. Uh, Lisa C and I saw this place together, and there was a pond there, and it was called Moon Pond. And when we both heard this this description, Moon Pond, we looked at each other. And and there's something you have with writers when you hear something good, and you know, like who's going to take that? <laughs> and she just said. You can have it. And I said, yeah. no, you can have it. No, you can have it. You know, we did the Chinese thing. And then she says, <laughs> and then I said, we'll both take it, you know, because we're writers and we write things differently. It'll come out differently. So we did, you know, and it is different in her book, Shanghai Girls. Um, you'll see that. 
And what did your mother think of the success of both the book? And was she still alive when the movie came out? She was. Yeah. Because she didn't um, want you to be a writer, did she, originally? She wanted me to be a doctor and mm. a concert pianist. Um, <laughs> I, over the years, I have met a lot of doctors and concert pianists. And, <laughs> you know, every time I see them, I said, wow, you actually gave in to the pressure. Um, <laughs> but... When I became a writer, um, I, I became a business writer first. I actually became quite successful in that, in terms of making enough money to support her. Um, I bought her a house or you know a place to live uh, in a adult, you know, senior living, assisted living kind of place, and she's very happy with that. When I became a fiction writer, um, that was unexpected. Uh, I did not quit my other job. Um, not uh, thinking this was short-lived, but when I became a fiction writer and it, this book continued to sell, she would tell people, oh yeah, I always knew she would do this. <laughs> she has a wild imagination. She used to accuse me of getting into trouble only because of that wild imagination. But now it became an asset. You know, now it became a skill. Um, and mother, all foreseen mother, you know, knew this would happen. Um, she loved the movie, and uh, yeah, she's the only one I know who sat through the movie completely dry-eyed. I was so afraid when we went to the screening, the premiere, that she would break down and have, uh, you know, go into hysteria. Everybody in that theater was crying. Uh, and I kept looking, she was sitting next to me, and I kept looking at her from the corner of my eye, and there are a number of scenes um, there are about <laughs> the screenwriter and the director, and I counted like others. Oh, there's another one. We're doing editing. You know, how many times people are going to cry? Oh, there's another one. Oh, there's an, like 27 times. You know, so I'm looking at my mother at each of these 27 times, and she's just like this. <laughs> and at the end, I said, "Well, how was it for you?" She said, "Good, very good." And I said, "Well, did you? You didn't cry. Uh, was it too sad?" And she said, "Oh no." And in China, it was so much worse. This is already better. <laughs> it's good. You know, I'm glad I was able to put the happy ending on it for her. Do you think Chinese and Jewish mothers have a lot in common? I think Jewish mothers took their lessons from Chinese mothers. <laughs> you know, Jews often, they, you know, Jews and Chinese will argue over whose culture was the oldest, you know, oh, ours is 5,000 years, oh, ours is five, our writing started here, our writing, you know, who had the paintings on, you go through this kind of um, com competition in culture, and I, I do think that whoever says definitively that their culture was the first to invent the piano can say they, they are the one who invented mother nagging. Um, <laughs> The head of the China Center at um, ANU, Professor Jeremy Barmer, is one of the world's leading experts on China, and he wrote the introduction to the China Yearbook in 2013, and he said, there are wags who joke online that the real Chinese dream is to buy into part of the American dream, to emigrate, at least send your children to school in the US. My two questions would be, do you think that trend is reversing now as quite a lot of Chinese come back to China? I, I, I do think it is. Um, I have somebody in my family who is sending his kids to college and uh, has bought a condominium for them to live in while they are attending college. 
and it's with the idea they will return to China where mm -hmm. they have a decent chance of making a lot of money. Um, it, it is so different now. You can't imagine. This is the same family that in 1987 lived in a crowded apartment with four people, um, no privacy, and uh, thought that maybe in 17 years they would be able to rent an apartment just for the three of them, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the husband, wife, and daughter. And what a change has occurred during that time. Uh, so I, I, I know of a lot of uh, people now who see that they can make money in China and they don't mm -hmm. have any desire to, to stay there, but they buy houses there. Mm -hmm. They send their kids to school there. Do you think emulating American consumerism is not necessarily a good thing of that dream? And for example, that, that fast food outlets are cool in China. Yeah, those have been there for a while. You know, yeah. for for the longest time, there was no problem with obesity in China, and and now it's a huge problem. They don't ride bicycles anymore. The streets are just clogged with Maseratis and Lamborghinis, and um, that uh, you know the pollution is is horrible. It's it's a different society, and I think um, you know you can't say well, you should have. Uh, not had the excesses of a of a capitalist society and stayed um, you know poorer than than we are. They just did it in massive quantities. You know, corruption in massive quantities, consumerism in massive quantities, and now they are like the bank of China that the United States has. You know, they hold a lot of our debt, mm. and um, it's I think to. A lot of Americans, and I count myself as an American, you know, you have to wonder what's going to happen when they hold that much economic power. Their uh, dream of success is different from that of the American dream. It encompasses many of the same things of going to school and having that their children will do better and they will have education, they will have a house, but it goes even beyond that. Mm -hmm. China today is also one in which they don't look to the West necessarily for the model. It is one that where they say, you know, don't tell us what to do because we're doing just fine. And in the past, when you told us what to do, it led to a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's different. You know, we we have to pay attention to how things are developing in the way we should have been paying attention uh, over the last number of centuries. Mm -hmm. um, things that didn't happen over the last hundred years that are now uh, having revert reverberations um, in diplomatic policies. Mm. And I think we, so we were looking at this book on Shanghai earlier, that the contrast between the 1920s and now the women in Shanghai in the current time um, is so dramatic. And um, you certainly yeah. see the tiger women as, as well coming through in that context. Mm -hmm. um, if we could talk about tiger women. Uh, this is, I, I tried <laughs> to find a photo of you know, Amy I, in the rock be. bottom remainders. Let me see. Uh, uh, let's see if this is. And I actually no. saw Amy in the Rock Bottom Remainders in 1992 at the first concert oh, they no, did I in guess Anaheim. It's not there. And I Sorry. came back to Australia and said yeah. to my wife, "We must get a video of, of this Sorry. because Stephen King was playing guitar and Amy was singing as part of a trio and was dressed as a dominatrix, um, <laughs> as you can see." Um, and then we listened to it. It wasn't actually very good because we actually drank a lot and watched it. But I guess that was your it first was performance. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> The first year, I did not wear that costume. I was oh. trying to be a good singer, I and I sang "Bye Bye Love." And yep, yeah, yep, we had yep. a sparkly outfit That's on right. and a wig, and Supreme, um, so. and you know, we're, we 
you know, tried to move. We got reviewed by Don Henley of the Eagles. Wow. And he said that he described our singing as alley cats on garbage night <laughs> and said we had stiff white lady, white women libidos. I'm not <laughs> white, you know, I just, I, he wasn't talking about me, was he? But that we were moving like we had mm -hmm. stiff libidos. Um, the following year, we had as our, uh, as our music director a guy named... Al Cooper, not Alice Cooper, Al Cooper, um, a, a bona fide rock musician. And we used to fax back in those days, and we decided we all do this again. We all loved each other. And he said, he faxed one day, I see our Amy wearing thigh-high leather boots, fishnet stockings, and carrying a whip, singing, these boots are made for walking. And I shot back, that is the most sexist thing I've ever heard. I hate that song. I won't do that. And then my friend Kathy, who started the band, in her wisdom said, uh, you could always sing Bye Bye Love Again. That's, that's cute. And I realized, you know, that this is not about my self-esteem, my dignity. This is about entertaining people and letting them laugh at me. Um, because I, I, I would never be able to sing well. And so what I, there's a difference between, uh, you know, talent and, and performance. You could have both. You can have talent and per good performance. If you don't have talent, you just got to amp up your performance, make it a little different. So... So that's what I tried to do over the years. And I still had the stiff libido look for a while, you know, and it took me 20 years to perfect it. And then we were done, you know, then yeah. we retired. Um, we actually got together again last year, and we're going to get together again in uh, Tucson, Arizona in March. So I don't think our band will ever quit. The other members of the band uh, include Mitch Album. Uh, uh, Scott Turow. Uh, Dave Barry. Well, Dave Barry, uh, yep. Dave Barry, Matt Groening, the creator yep, yep, of The Simpsons, yep, yep. Greg Isles. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, it's all mm. these very dignified people. Roger McGuinn is our, has been our guest rock and roll, uh, real rock and roll star. And We've had Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, Bruce Springsteen, yeah, Bruce yeah. Springsteen uh, <laughs> Leslie Gore, you know, of, of uh, yeah. It's My Party, Judy Collins, um, we had it's real people, Darlene Love, and uh, many, and uh, we've, you know, Hall of Shame kind of <laughs> performances. Oh, and Warren Zevon for a number of years. Uh, some of these people actually believed we could play. Darlene Love was so upset that this band was accompanying her, and she was yelling at us like, no, you know, as though by her giving directions, we could actually improve our performance. <laughs> I want to say, you don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> and did that lead to you being in The Simpsons? Uh, Matt Groening actually asked a number of us to be um, in his uh, part of his cartoons. A lot of people, they're, they're a certain faction of, of my readers who think that is the greatest thing I've ever done, my greatest accomplishment. <laughs> uh, he asked Stephen King and me and... Um, and then two members who are not with our band, Maya Angelou and uh, John Updike. Okay. So they became cartoons. Um, I was at a book fair in this cartoon. Lisa Simpson comes to the book fair. She's sitting in the audience. She's listening to me talk. And then she raises her hand and she says, Oh, Mrs. Tan, I love the mother-daughter theme of your books. <laughs> and I say, 
That's not what my books are about. Sit down, I'm ashamed for the both of us. <laughs> when, uh, you know, traumatizing Lisa Simpson, who's become illiterate since then. I, when we were recording this, I was in a studio in San Francisco and we were connected by an ISDN line. Matt was in Los Angeles and he, I have the lines in front of me. And he said, okay, now say that. That was good, that was good. But say it with a little bit more force, like really get angry. So I'd say, that, you stupid little girl, that's not what my book is, you know, and it would get more and more vile until I was using words you, you should not use in a library, uh, <laughs> let alone with a little girl. Uh, and, and then we were laughing the whole time. We did about 20 takes and got really, really bad. And then he ended up, of course, using the one that I just recited to you. That's, you know, pretty mild. Uh, it's fun. We had a lot of fun in our band. Well, we've had a lot of fun with you, and I certainly have. So it's probably an appropriate time to do the questions from the audience. And so he's our moderator coming. Yes, yeah, just before, before we get on to the questions, I love the description of Amy's role in the band, which is, <laughs> which is backing vocalist, second tambourine, and rhythm dominatrix. <laughs> <laughs> now, I think we have, I'm, I'm sure we'll have some questions. We've got some microphones at the ready. So I think we have about 10 minutes, um, 10 minutes or so, and then we'll go upstairs for the book signing. So are there any questions? Stunned silence. <laughs> There's one up the back. Uh, right at the back in, um, yes, thanks. Hi, Amy. Um, I just wanted to quit, ask you a question about your dad. Did, um, when he married your mum, did he know about her life previously? When, I'm sorry? When your father married your mother. When my father married my mother, yeah. Did he know about her previous life in China? Oh, um, yes. In fact, he was the reason why she went to jail. They fell in love in about, around 1945. It could have been earlier, um, but certainly by 1945, they were living together, having discreet meetings. And when she wanted to leave him to go off, leave her husband to go off with the man who would be my father, uh, that husband had her put in jail. Um, and when my father left for the United States, he was supposed to study at MIT. He had a scholarship in engineering. Instead, he felt so shameful um, because of what happened to this woman he loved, that he decided he'd go into the ministry, uh, thinking, I, I suppose, that maybe by doing penance like that, God would forgive him and let his beloved out of jail. She was let out of jail, and she joined him two years later. But he knew everything. He knew about her daughters. He knew, he knew she never got divorced. It, it's, it's shocking to me even to think about, I think it, about it in so many different ways. You know, my father, the minister, my mother, you know, that they knew these things. Any more questions? Don't tell me about the mother-daughter theme. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, right down the front here. Just microphone's on its way. Um, I thoroughly enjoy reading the novel. It was wonderful. And I'm just curious as to how long it actually took you from the start to the finish. Um, the publicist in the States likes to say it took almost 10 years. And I said, no, it didn't. You know, it's more like 
seven or eight. Um, they, I don't know why they think it's to my advantage to make it <laughs> 10 years. Um, the reason why it took so long, um, I got de derailed by a number of things. One is that I started writing an opera, libretto for an opera, and I never intended to work on that, but I kind of got lured into it. Um, and that meant doing a lot of research and going off with musicians and raising money for the opera. The other is I started building a house, a house of the future. It would be an accessible house. You cannot build a house without spending a lot of time doing that, every single detail. Um, that was like writing three books. Um, and then I came across the photo and I abandoned the other book. Um, so in reality, this book took three years to write. Uh, you know, but part of part of um, writing a book is all the thought that went into it over those eight years. Uh, yeah, so we've got a question down here at the front again. Yeah. Just right down here. Hi, um, I've read The Opposite of Fate some time ago, and I, um, from the book you mentioned that you, in, you uh, had Lyme disease. Yeah. Um, how are you feeling now? <laughs> you look very good. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, I was infected in 1999. I was diagnosed in 2003, and during that time it became entrenched in my brain. I couldn't think very well. I actually um, fell apart while I was in Australia because of the stress of doing four months of book tour and I couldn't hold back all the symptoms. Um, it profoundly affected my life and I, I was like somebody with Alzheimer's. But when I finally was diagnosed, um, after 10 different doctors, um, I started taking antibiotics and it took um, a while for things to clear up but when I got my brain back, I started writing 20 pages a day worried that that would be, it would shut down again. And that is the book I wrote um, when my brain came back. Uh, my disease is not curable at this point because I've had it for so long and it goes into different forms and there's all kinds of reasons. Uh, it's a very controversial disease, um, but I'm healthy. Um, if you think about it, we all have different problems that we develop as we get older. Um, some have arthritis, some have, you know, hip problems. I have Lyme disease, but mine is managed with certain medications, and uh, the only problem is I, uh, the limitation. I can't drive. I have epilepsy, which is controlled except for one version of it, um, but I never like to drive. So that's a benefit, you know. Um, <laughs> if somebody wants me to go someplace, they well, I can't drive. Okay, we'll pick you up. You know, so I always have chauffeurs, my husband being the primary chauffeur. And I think also you said in that book that you got some advice from Madonna on the diagnosis of the Lyme's disease. On Madonna? Madonna had given you some advice. Madonna. Read that somewhere. Madonna. I don't remember okay. what. Okay. What did she say? Oh, we, we do, when she, oh maybe I do have Lyme work out, disease still in my to, brain. I don't remember what she said. Trying to work out um, what, what the oh, symptoms well, well, were, yeah, oh. of the Lyme's disease. Work out this. Um, and she sent you a note saying that might be this. And no, Madonna. No, mm. not Madonna. 
You read a different book. <laughs> no, no. Or a different interview. Yes. Yeah. No, um, I did read, um, I, I had some uh, information that I came across. Somebody, I found out that my doctor had not tested me for Lyme ever. They mm. tested me for syphilis which is a spirochete uh, yeah. as well, the bacterial uh, infection, the spirochetobacteria. So similar, in a way, to the form that causes a lot of destruction. But he thought it was so improbable that I would have Lyme disease because they thought it was rare. And I lived in California, and not knowing that I also lived in New York. Um, so... Um, if Madonna had anything to do with it, it was because I was trying to sing a song uh, called <laughs> Material Girl, and I could not keep track of the lyrics. Mm -hmm. I would forget, I would read them, and I immediately forgot them. That is a symptom of Lyme disease. Your short-term short memory is zero. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's a frightening disease, and I know of people who've lost their lives to it. So it's, you know, people say, oh, it's curable, two weeks of antibiotics. It's... Unfortunately, not true for, for a number of people. Um. Okay. Now, I think we've got at least one more question up the back here already with the mic. Very good. Hi, Amy. My name is Kylie. Um, thank you so much for sharing your family's story so candidly and for uh, a lot of my adult life taking me on a journey to China and to places that I would never go. I have three questions. Which book... Well, given your life story, which book was the easiest to write? Which one did you like the most, and which one are you most proud of? Mm. You know, it'd be somewhat like asking which of your children do you like? Which one was... The, the only question you can um, answer of your children, which, is, which one was the easiest to give birth to? You know, you'd say, well, that one. I was only in labor for three hours. Um, and I will say the one that was the easiest to write in, in that sense was The Joy Luck Club. And that is because I was completely unaware of what was awaiting me. I didn't think that a lot of people would read this. I didn't think it would get reviewed by so many people. Um, and I didn't know what I was doing um, to know how much I should be insecure of, uh, you know, was I doing it correctly? I wrote that book um, three stories over three years while I was working my full-time job. And when I got a contract, I finished the rest in about six months. I could never do that now, except for the book *The Opposite of Fate*. When I, uh, but that was nonfiction, and I wrote out of desperation um, of wanting to write, thinking my brain would stop. The other books get more and more difficult, um, in part because I'm much more critical of myself. I'm far more critical um, than any reviewer. Uh, and I, uh, I also want to ask more difficult questions of myself. Books that I'm most proud of, I don't think of it in those terms. Um, maybe the one that made me, my mother, happiest was the first one because she ended up realizing I did understand her. I can't choose a favorite for myself because these books are different parts of me, different stages of my life. They're all one continuous, I'm one continuous person, the person I was at 6, 18, 25, now. Um, so I don't look at them in that, in that way. Thank you.
Thank you all for thanks very for being much. Here. We might just leave it there. Um, there is the opportunity for refreshments upstairs, and Amy's wonderful book, *The Value of Amazement*, is on sale in the bookshop with a with a ten percent discount as well. Plus, I would like to remind you all of the National Library publishing sale as well in the foyer. So please, please come and join us for that. Amy, thank you very much. Thank that was you. an absolute delight to have you in the library. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. And thank you, Colin, for your. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. Thank you.